All right, good morning, Bethel. How's everyone this morning? Man, good to see all of you here. My favorite time during the week, 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. So glad you're here today. We are in our last week of our Three Circles series. And this is the one that some of you will look at and say, man, I'm, I've been waiting for this one. And some of the kids will be like, oh, really? We're in talk about Three Circles parenting today. And one of the things about parenting is you start training a child when they are young all the way down as an infant even you know you think how do you train an infant well you train them how to sleep through the night don't you that's part of the training process and as they get older you start training them how to how to eat whole food then how to you know go to the restroom how to walk that training process is at every point in the process of of parenting i can remember when my um, kids were young Rachel started training the kids how to ask for more food. You know, as the kids, as they're young, they, you know, kind of pull up to the table and we have them in their high chair or whatever. And they start realizing, I'm hungry. There's food on that plate. I want more. Why is mom not feeding me? And what do they do? They'll scream. They'll do all kinds of things. And so the thing, and Cassie's over here already doing it because she knows she'd ask more, please. And so, you know, a little 12-month-old or whatever would sit at the table and go like this. And so Rachel would know that they're asking for more food. They can't verbally communicate that yet, but they know through the hand motions, more please, more please. And my kids, uh, you know, were, you know, that's how they would ask for more food. Well, you know, Jay's wife, Sarah, she taught her kids the same thing. And one day, Rachel was watching Calvin and Landry. And so she had three little ones pulled up around the table She had, you know, my youngest, Cassie, and Calvin and Landry, and so she was taking turns feeding each of them, and she wasn't getting to Calvin fast enough. And Calvin was doing his, he was screaming and, you know, wanting more food, and she would look at him because he knew what he was supposed to do to ask for more food, and she would say, more please, more please. And in his defiance, he was still screaming, and she would go, more please. And then finally, he realized that he just looks at her and goes, like that, like a, a little, you know, it's funny that even at that age, the defiance in our little hearts to the training that we're receiving. You know, the purpose of biblical parenting is to train our kids to know God, to love God, and to honor him with their lives. That's our goal as parents. Our goal as Christian parents should be heart transformation, not behavior modification. There's a difference there. Behavior modification is more, con- is more concerned with controlling the kids' actions. We can train our kids to behave, but yet still miss the heart issues. Biblical parenting means going after the heart. Why? Because God wants your heart. Because he knows when he has your heart, you will worship and serve him. So we want to teach our kids, and we hope that you do also, to think about God and pursue his design for their lives. Parents are God's agents to train their children. So here are a few just simple principles, and this message is going to be very practical. We want to give you some principles that you can follow um, to to understand and really get in, in line with God's design for parenting. Number one, 
it is rooted in love. Parenting is rooted in love, and, th- and this is God's love. This is genuine love. The Bible declares that, that God loves children, too. Psalm chapter 127, verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Last week, we talked about a wife, and, and we talked about what does the Bible say? A man who finds a wife finds a? Come on, husbands, you better say that one. A man who finds a wife finds a? Oh, my goodness, you guys are in so much trouble. Okay. This is your last chance. We can edit all this out. If your wife listens, she's in the kids' class, whatever, let's make sure she hears this one. A man who finds a wife finds a? A good thing. The Bible says a good thing. The Bible also declares that children are a heritage from the Lord, of the fruit of the womb, a reward. Children are a blessing. It's our duty as parents to help our children understand that God has a design for their lives. And we've been talking about this through the whole series. God has a design for everything. Throughout the scriptures, we teach them the pattern of God's design. We show them the sin. We show them brokenness. We show them how to be transformed by the gospel. And this empowers them to be reminded of God and his continuous, unfailing love. That is our job as a parent, to remind them. Of God's love. Even though God loves our children, they must realize that they are sinners and they need a Savior. Even after they become believers, our children will still sin and still experience brokenness. They will need to know that even though they fail, God still loves them and offers them the support they need through the gospel to recover and pursue God's design again and again and again and again and again. Because we are going through the exact same thing, aren't we? So when our kids struggle with things, when our kids have sin in their lives, when our kids experience brokenness, it's important for them to be pointed towards the the Savior, pointed towards the gospel, pointed towards the hope that we have in getting back to God's design. This is one of the reasons why the three circles is such a powerful tool. It really helps our children in our parenting. It helps them understand the gospel to be saved, but it also helps them understand not just that, that Jesus died to save you, but that Jesus died to help you become who you're supposed to be, to move you along in your walk. The gospel empowers us to do that, and that is all because of God's love for us. So, not only do we see it through, it's rooted in God's love, but also we see it's revealed through God's wisdom. You know, the Bible is such a great resource for parenting because the Bible is realistic on how life works. And why is that? Because it was written by the Creator. So, God has a design. This is what we've been talking about for the last three weeks. And when we fall short of that design, we sin. And even the parents mentioned in the Bible, they sinned and fell into brokenness and fell short of God's design. But what Proverbs does, Proverbs has so many good things to talk about wisdom and how we are to live. Proverbs offers more direct godly wisdom on parenting than any other book. You know who wrote Proverbs? Somebody tell me, who wrote Proverbs? Solomon. Solomon wrote Proverbs. Solomon offers a lot of wisdom he wrote to his son on what he had learned through his mistakes. Even though Solomon was a king who was wealthy, who was wise, he had many insecurities. He had a lot of 
unhealthy patterns that he had learned during his dysfunctional childhood. And all of this, it affected his parenting. So what qualified Solomon to write a parenting manual since he had such a shady, shaky background riddled with dysfunction and failure? What qualified him to do that? Yes, he learned from his mistakes. God gave him that wisdom to write Proverbs. It's the same reason you are qualified to be the parent of the children that God has given you. Your children have one mom and one dad, and that is you. And God uniquely placed that child with you because you're qualified to train that child. Even though you might be sitting there thinking, Pastor Robert, I'm not. I'm not. God would not have given you that little one if he did not have confidence that you can train that child. Solomon shows us that wisdom is the most precious gift that a parent can pass along to their children. Let's see, let's read in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding. For the gain of her from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who laid hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. You might be wondering, what exactly is wisdom? Some people think that it's something mystical that only the enlightened people can access. But the Bible says that wisdom comes from God. And he gives wisdom to those who ask him for it. For those who ask him, how many times have you gone to God and said, God, give me wisdom in -in fill-in-the-blank situation? How many times have you gone to God and said, God, give me wisdom on how to handle my 16-year-old daughter? When's the last time you prayed that? God said, if you'll ask me for it, I will give it to you. But we don't even ask for it. If I were to pull this room, I would say that, If you were honest with me, I'd say most of you probably didn't even pray that prayer this week. But we just read what Solomon said in Proverbs, how precious wisdom truly is. Wisdom can be defined as skill at living life. My my kids have heard me use this phrase with them. What would be the wise choice in this situation? Or, what would wisdom say? That's a phrase that I've used with them, and I make them talk me through the situation to help them think through the wise choice and teach them wisdom. Parenting is not about perfecting techniques or methods. It's not a magic formula. It's about acquiring and applying godly wisdom. God can use the Bible, guidance of the Holy Spirit, parenting metaphors, and even our church family to help us 
gather wisdom, and then pursue and recover God's design in our parenting. Number three, God's design for parenting is fueled by God's word. It's fueled by the word of God. We must be influenced by God and his word more than we are the world. Does everybody understand how heavily we're influenced by the things we're surrounded by? The things we surround ourselves with, maybe some things that, that by choice we've surrounded ourselves with, or some things that just happen because we're around them. Many of you raise your children in your home, and they are fans of the teams that you're fans of. Why? Because you've surrounded them with those things. I, I moved to Florida over 10 years ago, and, and I have been surrounded for over a decade by oh, blue and orange, and it makes me want to hurl. I don't like it. It's disgusting. And one of my closest friends just continues to put it upon me and, and surround me with it, and I have to resist it. Go Gators. Oh. It's rough. But there are a lot of things about being a Floridian that I've enjoyed and I've loved and I've been surrounded by. I enjoy rice and beans now. Who knew? Plantains? Fantastic. When I first moved here, Robert and Rachel will tell you, I could not stand rice and beans. I'm like, where's the meat, people? Where's the food? And now I'm like, give me some rice and beans. Let's do this. A little plantain on the side. You guys know what I'm talking about. That's no joke. That's Florida. I wear flip-flops all the time. That's Florida. We, we become like the things we're surrounded by. L let me give you a little more serious example. Uh, there's a book that I read recently called Atomic Habits. It's a great book and just very practical. It's not a Christian book. It's not a Christian author, but it's just really, really interesting stuff. And, and the author cites a series of experiments done by a psychologist named Solomon Ash. And, and essentially what they did was they put a person in a room full of strangers. And one person was the test subject. All the other strangers in the room were paid actors. They were all part of it. And, and unbeknownst to that person, those planted actors were there to help deliver scripted answers. The actors in the room would intentionally select wrong answers. And at first, the participant would look around kind of bewildered and nervously laugh like, what's going on? And, and, and then they, they would start to cave. Let, let me show you what was one of their examples, okay? Now... Which line is longer? This isn't a trick question, everybody. <laughs> the bottom line, hold on, let me just, this may be, this may be a little, little, uh, little too much. Okay, let's try this way. Which line is longer? They're right. Everybody agree? Why do you agree? Because it's a fact. It's true. That's what it is. The one on the right is longer. It's clear as day. We can all see that. But what happened to this test subject is the other people would say, no, 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 they're equal. And, and he, they, they would kind of be a little overwhelmed and, and a little frustrated and curious. But you don't want to know what happened? At the end of the study, as they tested people over and over again, different people would come in, different test subjects would come in. 75% of the time, the individual who knew what was truth, caved and answered with the group. 75% of the time, they would argue with what they see clear as day in their own mind and go with the crowd. That's the power of influence. People would rather be 
People would better, rather be wrong with the crowd than right alone. They would rather be wrong with a group of people than right and be all alone. Let me give you another one. You say, Pastor Day, that's crazy. That's crazy. That, that would never happen. That would never happen to me. I, I don't see that at all. It's just the two lines were completely different. Ask your kids what their friends believe about these two things. Ask your kids what the world is screaming to us about these two. About something so foundational as boy and girl, as male and female. Ask your children what they're being exposed to in school, on social media. The influences that, they're, that, that, that they experience. Ask them, what do their friends think about these things? It's not just God created man and woman, but biology screams this. Nature screams this truth. And we live in a world who's rejecting it. Why? Because we would more often rather be wrong with the crowd than right by ourselves. And Satan is a deceiver. And he is very good at what he's doing. And the whole point is to get you surrounded by influences that will change the way you believe, to change the way you think. And that's why it is so important that we and our parenting must be fueled by God's word. It is the foundation for everything that we do. Not only do we have to be careful to be more influenced by God and his word, but our kids need to be taught to discover and pursue God's design for their lives according to scripture. We can't just spoon feed them. We have to show them how they can seek that truth out. We have to show them to find those things. It's a tall task. It's overwhelming. It's discouraging. But our kids must learn. God has a design for every aspect of their lives, for sexuality, for gender, for family structure, for money, for material things, for racism, for substance abuse, forgiveness, on and on and on and on. Everything we deal with is in this world. God has a design. Everything. All the beliefs, all the behaviors that follow as we pursue God's design will from time to time place our kids and our families outside of the mainstream culture. And sometimes outside of the mainstream culture may be in the crosshairs. And we as Christian parents have to know that. We have to understand that. We have to know that the world they're living in is messed up. The Bible warns us to be careful not to think like the world. Romans chapter 12 is, is one of the most famous passages, and I want you to think about it in this context. It says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be like the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It says in John chapter 17, verse 16, that we're to be in the world, but not of it. This is such a hard thing. This is such a hard thing, students. I get it. I get it. We were all students at one point. We were all in high school. And while our struggles and your struggles are totally different, it's all the same. There's a pressure to be like the world. There's a pressure to conform to the things that the world tells us we need to be and we need to do. And then there's the truth of God's design for our lives. And the life that we live inside God's design is so much better. Why? Because brokenness ends when we go out on our own. There's harmony, there's hope, there's freedom in God's design. Believers in Jesus are supposed to be different. We're supposed to be living according to God's design. We are supposed to be noticeable. 
If your neighbors don't understand that there's something different about you, then you need to ask yourself some serious questions in your own heart. You're supposed to be different. Jesus said that believers should be salt and light to this world. You are the salt of the earth. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14 says, You are the salt of the earth, but as salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. We have a calling to be the salt of the world. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. Let's think about this. I, I, I have a, a, a bag of Lay's, and this is the classic Lay's potato chips. Robert, open those up for me. Now, if I were to take a spoonful of salt and just kill it, what do you think would happen? I'd probably hurl. But when I take one of these beautiful, delicious, classic Lay's potato chips and I eat it, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know what's there? The saltiness. It's not too much. It's not too little. It's exactly what it's supposed to be. See, Lay's is, is, is made by a big company, Frito-Lay, and they've got scientists that perfect these recipes. The salt on those chips are, are like scientifically engineered and calculated to make you want more, make you a little bit thirsty. Frito-Lay and Pepsi, they're in business together. Make you a little thirsty and to meet that craving that you have for saltiness. It's just the right amount. I think a lot of times, believers, when we hear messages like this and we see this, this model of, of the three circles and we know what our responsibility is, we, we potentially we, we think about that bullhorn Christian. You know, the, the street preacher screaming and yelling at people, telling them that they're all going to hell and that, that they're sinners and that everything they did is wrong and nobody loves you because you're a sinner. And, and, and a lot of times we think that in our mind and so we reject anything that potentially even comes close to that. When in reality, the Bible just tells us to be salt. It tells us to be just right. The, the, the right amount, just enough to be different, just enough to be refreshing, just enough to be satisfying. When you are having conversations with your neighbors, and, and, and we've talked about this, the, the three circles is about turning everyday conversations into what? Gospel conversations. We're not telling you to scream at your neighbors and go knock on their door every other day telling them that they're going to hell if they don't come to church with you. What we are saying is be salt and light. You live your life different. Let them see you parent differently. Let them see you prioritize church. Let them see you prioritize your faith, your, your integrity, your values. Let them see those things, and they'll see salt. We're not, we're not trying to be abrasive. We don't want to be a spoonful of salt that everybody's going to puke. That's not what this is about. We need to be just right. And when they have those everyday conversations and we can point them to the hope that we have in Christ, we can point them to who God is and what he has done for them. That is when they begin to see the difference. We need to get used to being different. We're going to parent differently than other parents. We're going to have to train our kids to be different and distinct from other kids, to be more influenced by God and his word than the world around them. This is not easy. And some of you have parented and your kids are out of the house. Some of you have teens. Some of you are like me and your kids are a little younger. And some of you guys haven't started on that journey. It ain't easy. But it's worth it.
And church, let me encourage you this. If you're not a parent, the church, the body of Christ, there are a lot of, of, of kids in our church. There are a lot of people in our church who have missing parts and pieces of God's design for family. I want to encourage you, wherever you are, to think about, where do I fit in? I never had kids. I, I don't have a normal family system. I don't have a mom and a dad. How do we do this as a church? This isn't just for mom, dad, boys, girls. Like this is, we're, We are a church family. So where do you fit, on, fit in? Where do you, where do you fall into that, that model? And how can you be Jesus to the families in this church? They need it. So not only should it be rooted in God's word, our parenting, but it needs to be fueled in our hope in God. How many parents have, how many times as parents have you found yourself embarrassed? I've been embarrassed. My kids have embarrassed me. If you're, if you've ever been in a restaurant with a toddler, you've probably been embarrassed. Yes, you're shaking your hands, you know, because they, they have an ability of doing that. And maybe you, at some point, now you feel, as your kids get older, you feel discouraged or just plain worn out. Like, parenting is not for the, the faint of heart. It is difficult. You know, how often do we put all of our hope in our children following exactly what we tell them to do, and they don't do it, and then we feel hopeless? Like, will they ever get it. We say things like, this isn't working. Why don't you listen to me? Do you hear the words coming out of my mouth? And we get frustrated. We fear. We doubt. We long for a better plan. It's, it's in those moments we realize we need something more. We need something bigger. Someone to put our hope in that will not fail us. You see, the book of Psalms is a collection of ancient songs, songs that are powerful and that they express emotion. They soothe the soul. They teach us or help us remember. I'm going to read a passage from Psalm 130 here in just a moment. But I want you to imagine a group of Hebrew parents reading this passage and singing the words to their children. Maybe it's a mom who's holding the hand of her daughter as they are walking to the market together. Perhaps it's a dad who has a young son on his shoulder. As they're teaching this, it says, I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning. More than a watchman for for the morning, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Man, I love these, if you pull out these little phrases here in Psalms 130, wait on the Lord. Hope in what? In our kids' behavior? No, <laughs> that's going to fail us. In our spouse? No, we hope, we find our hope in the Lord. Trust in his faithful love. Remember he is steadfast and redeems us. There's even more imagery there in that verse. It talks about a watchman. If you remember, if you, you know, yeah, um, an ancient city that had walls, they would put a watchman on top of the walls throughout the night 
to watch for any invaders or for any attack that was happening? What was the one job that the watchman could not do? Sleep. They could not fall asleep. Why? Because the town's livelihood and safety depended upon it. They must stay awake throughout the night to watch for any dangers. I love that imagery. He's keeping watch over you and over me. He's keeping watch. He's vigilant. He's alert. He is most likely, as we, we look at this, the, the community is there, is counting on him. No doubt, he throughout the night, the watchman has doubts and fears. There were times of concern and warning and, and worry, but he watched for the morning with expectation and with assurance, the psalmist, because his hope was in the Lord. This is how... We are to wait on the Lord and hope in him. Our hope is not in our children's performance. We should not place our hope there. Our hope should not be in our job because we know that our jobs will fail us. We can get a terrible loss. Our hope should not be in our position, should not be in our marriage, Our hope should not be in our possessions. It should not be in our bank account and our 401k. It should not be in our status. Our hope should not be in any of those things. Why? Because they are temporary. They will fail us. We have our hope in one. Our hope in the Lord. We are all tempted at some point to put our hope in something else other than God. Some of you, maybe you you have lost hope and you have watched your children Struggle and run from God. In the unsure and scary times, God is the only constant for your soul. God has plans for you that are true and sure. God's redemptive plan that he unveiled to the children of Israel is the same plan he offers you. Through the gospel, God makes a way out of brokenness when we repent and believe. And he allows us to recover and pursue God's design every single time. Each week we've given you a practical way to apply the three circles. And and we want to do that again today. We want to show you how you can take this model and overlay it, hopefully in a situation that um, you may all have some experience with as, as parents in this room. So let's imagine our kid comes home and they're really upset, they're struggling, they had a really bad day because something terrible at school happened. And, and let's just say, you know, th- th- it's, it's one of our daughters. And a good friend said some mean things, some very hurtful things. So she comes home upset because they are spreading lies about her in school. What are we going to do as a parent? How does that fit in to the three circles? Our child is hurt. They've been sinned against. How does that fit in to this model? Well, it's helpful for us to immediately point them to God's design. And we can ask a question to our child. What do you think God wants you to do in this situation? What do you think God's design is for you in this situation? Well, hopefully they'll be reminded of some biblical principles to love your enemy 
to pray for people who do you wrong. And then we show them how their response to this unfair situation, how their response to this hurt can either follow God's design or our own sinful path. See, we can either love our enemy, we can either pray for those who do us wrong, or we can think about and, and struggle with and focus on our revenge. And if we decide to respond to those, those things, if we re- respond in, in to that unfortunate situation with our own sinful actions, say we maybe, well, let's just start a lie about them. Let's give them a little bit of their own medicine. Or boys, we just punch them right in the face. Let's go start a school fight. Well, then where do we land? When we stray outside of God's design with our own sin, next stop, brokenness. And we can show them that even though they were sinned against, they have the opportunity to not sin in response and follow God's design, or their sinful actions are going to land in the same place that it always does of brokenness. The sin committed against your child results in brokenness, but their response can also lead to brokenness. And anytime we stray from God's design, we get brokenness. So where does the gospel come into play? And this is where we can move our children to forgiveness. When our kids are hurting and in pain, it's hard to think about recovering and pursuing God's design. When our kids are going through those moments, you've been there as a parent. You know, if you have kids, what it feels like when they've been sinned against. You know how hard it is for you not to sin as well. It's hard to deal with. So how do we help them recover and pursue God's design? Well, let's stop and ask some key questions, and hopefully we can get them there. We're going to ask our children, think about how much God has forgiven you from. Think about how the forgiveness that you were offered by Christ. Think about all your sinful actions that you've ever done and ever will do. And think about the price that Jesus paid and how he took the penalty for those sins. Think about the gospel in your life and how that might change your response to this situation. And we can ask our children, if God can forgive you of all your sin, don't you think you can forgive your classmate? We need to instruct our children that we have been forgiven. And and because we've been forgiven, that's the gospel at work in our lives. That's the, the power of the gospel living in us that gives us the ability to also extend forgiveness. It's not natural to do that. Once our hearts have embraced forgiveness, we can continue to recover and pursue God's design. Are you seeing it yet? Every situation... This one started with somebody else's sin, and we can still point our children to God's design. No matter how complex the situation, parent, that you're going to go through, you can point your children to this model. Whether they've been sinned against or they're the sinner, we can look at this and see where we land, all the ways we try to escape it, how we can't fix it on our own. We need Christ, and how we can recover and pursue God's design. Isn't that cool? This exact situation, we've had conversations with our children here recently, and one of the questions that we've asked them is, do they know Jesus? Do they know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? And the situation, it was a no. And the conversation goes like, how can we, through this sinful act that was committed against you, point them to the gospel? Because our ultimate goal is for everyone to know Jesus Christ. And this person who has sinned against you, how can you 
through the brokenness, reflect the gospel so they can see Christ. You know, remember, the goal is heart transformation, not behavioral modification. There is a difference. Heart transformation. There isn't one experience, one episode, or conversation that is going to be the answer to all of your parenting needs. But over time, as you continually have this gospel three-circle conversation with your children, God will use it to help shape the way they view him, the world around them, and their place in it. Knowing, believing, and living out the principles of God's word will prepare us for whatever comes in our parenting journey. So, just as you are for your children, God is for you. And God is especially for you as you fulfill your responsibility to train and disciple your children in the wisdom that God provides through his word. Let's pray.